This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Blue Cliff Record, Case 80. A monk asked Joshu, does a newborn baby have the sixth consciousness or not? Joshu said, bouncing a ball on swift waters. The monk also asked Tosu, what does bouncing a ball upon swift waters mean? Tosu said, Thought by thought, the flow never stops. This koan continues the theme we were discussing uh, last week about the opening of Joko's book in which she talks about how her dog doesn't worry about the meaning of life. And one of the things that we're exploring is the way that metaphors display our various conceptions of the, the state that we seem to be aiming for in our practice. And in this case, the monk is asking about the state of a mind of a newborn baby. And while it may seem like a uh, abstraction to ask about does a baby have the sixth consciousness or not, I think you can hear a real question in the monks asking What is it that we're trying to become? Are we trying to return to some primitive, original, essentially pre-lapsarian state before our mind was contaminated by thinking? The sixth consciousness, consciousness being what conceptualizes and unifies the senses, the five senses. Are we aiming at a state that is pure perception, pure experience that's free of any kind of conceptualization at all?
And sometimes we can imagine it to ourselves when we think of becoming just like our dog, acting perfectly natural, concerning only with the most basic things in life, food and shelter, affection, not troubling themselves with a lot of empty conceptual nonsense. Is that what we're, where we're supposed to end up after all this? Or are we supposed to be childlike? Does childlike convey a sense of constant wonder and delight in the life just as it is? Is that what we're trying to do? But when the monk asks Joshu, he gets a reply, bouncing a ball upon swift waters. The images of something hardly calm or peaceful or immediate, it's something that's rather out of control and turbulent. And not knowing what to make of that answer, he asks another teacher, Tosu, who says, thought by thought, the flow never stops. And Tosu is even more explicit in saying, we're not here to eliminate thought. Thought never stops. Throw away any notion you have of clarity or calmness that's going to result from wiping away this whole dimension of your mind. But I think the persistence of that kind of curative fantasy uh, is hard to overstate that in a way, no matter how much we sort of know better, there's a way in which we almost automatically think in terms of a good period of sitting is one in which we seem to empty our minds and feel very calm and clear or just focused on our body and our breath. That's what it's supposed to be like. And then another period when we're restless or preoccupied. Well, obviously that's a bad sitting. We don't want it to go like that. And so there's very automatically, I think, reflexively, a kind of sorting of our experience and to good and bad, how we'd like it to go and what we're trying to get away from. My opening remarks this morning, I referred to Joko saying, her practice was, I just sit and think. 
it seems clear and straightforward and sort of refreshing. I just said the thing. And yet it's actually not so easy to understand what distinguishes what Joko is doing from what anybody could do if they're just sitting around and daydreaming. What makes her sitting and thinking practice? Or what's wrong with just sitting and daydreaming or sitting and obsessing, worrying? Why isn't that practice? See, I understand what Joko said in a way analogous to Dogen when he tries to explain Zazen as think non-thinking. This was supposed to clarify things, right? Somebody who didn't understand it. And the first way, of course, to misunderstand what he was saying is to assume think not thinking equals don't think. And then you're sort of back with the monk in this koan who wants to go back to being a newborn infant with no conceptual contaminations. But what's think not thinking going to mean if it doesn't mean don't think? What does just thinking mean? One way to try to describe that is to just say just thinking is experiencing thinking like another bodily function or sensation. Thinking is just something happening in your body-mind the way itches are happening in your body. Sensations are happening, the way sounds come to your ears. They're just the next thing happening. And in a way, it could be like sitting in a room where in the next room over, somebody's playing a radio where there's a talk station in a foreign language that you don't understand. And it just babbles on and you sort of know it's talking and you can sort of hear from the inflection that there's obviously meaning to all this. It's not just noise, but you don't know what it is and you don't concern yourself with it particularly. You can't make it go away, you can't make it stop. 
But it just sort of goes on in the background. After a while, it's not a problem. It's just part of the background of what's happening. We could say that one way to say what's happening is that we're experiencing the emptiness of thought. We're not focused on the intentionality of thought, the aboutness of thought, how it hooks into the world or has meaning. But primarily, we're just letting thoughts be a background activity of our mind. Now, we're never going to completely eliminate that sense of what the words mean or what's going on through our head. But there really is a kind of difference between sort of letting the thoughts flow and being preoccupied with them. Just letting one thing after another pass through your head versus worrying or entertaining yourself with daydreams or trying to figure out something or planning what you're going to do next. All those things, you get hooked into the content of the words and the thoughts. They matter. And so in a certain sense, there's a kind of demattering going on in just letting thinking happen as a bodily sensation. Another way to picture it is what I've always used with the uh, the duck rabbit uh, drawing to illustrate a kind of shift in perspective, uh, even though nothing has actually changed. You can spend a lot of time looking at this figure and just see the duck. It's obviously a duck. And yet, at some point, you look at the exact same figure, and instead of seeing the bill of the duck, you see the ears of the rabbit. But it's exactly the same drawing. Something like that, I think, happens in what we call awakening. Nothing at all changes in our lives, and yet we experience differently. We see it differently. We feel it differently. And in part, that's a switch into a sense that As I've said, nothing is hidden, or nothing is wrong or lacking. We're not trying to get from here to there. There's just a sense of having arrived somewhere with what's ever happening, regardless of the content.
Now, our experience of sitting, and especially sitting in Sashin, is that we will all sort of more or less go in and out of that duck-rabbit perspective to different degrees and in different ways. And we may spend 99.9% of our time in duck and, you know, just have this little glimpse out of the corner of our eye of rabbit. Or we may settle into something that just is this kind of comfortable way of leaving everything alone, feeling our breath, letting our bodies do what they're doing as we sit. And then have a shift into when is this going to be over? When's the bell going to be ringing? How? What am I supposed to be doing when this is over? And there we can just feel caught in the wrongness of everything. See, I think as our practice really matures, again, there's really no difference between those things. And it's possible for us to experience even that sense of when is this going to be over as, oh, that's just what's happening now. It's not that we stop having those thoughts or feelings or our restlessness or our planning or anything else. But there's a way that even that is just incorporated into the background landscape of thought by thought, the flow never stops. The experience of Sashin in particular is one of sort of taking experience whole. In a way, I've been trying to let as many people as possible participate as best they can, if they can only come half day, we've sort of agreed, okay, let people do that. But I do think that when you only come for half the day, uh, you're missing out on something that's important about the nature of Sashin. And it's not just... Um, you're not getting as much of something. It's more that you're not getting a full spectrum of experience, uh, which often means you're sort of missing out on the boredom, or you're missing out on the pain, or you're missing out on the restlessness. Uh, you're missing out on the times when it doesn't go the way you want it to go which you're a little more able to do the shorter the periods are. And we all get all of that in every period, you know, uh, sometimes. But there is something that's different 
about when we have this whole day or a whole weekend or a whole week that it serves up this whole spectrum of experience. And we see sort of our natural uh, limits to sort of how much is duck and how much is rabbit and what we're able to, to stay with and just allow to be, this is what's next, this is what's happening. See, I think that there's a way in which we can practice Zazen regularly, an hour a day or whatever we do. And we can derive a great deal of benefit from it. Uh, it can be very stabilizing in our lives. It can be regulating sort of mentally and physiologically. Uh, we may really feel like if we miss a day or don't get to do it regularly, we feel the difference. Uh, the Zazen really does something that settles us. And I think that's all to the good. And I would encourage everybody to practice and get those benefits. But I don't think that that part is very unique to Zazen. And you could probably get much of that from yoga or other kinds of uh, practices or disciplines. In a way, what makes Zazen different is uh, how we do it extending to all the times when it doesn't seem to help, when it's not giving us any benefit, uh, when it's just difficult. when it's serving up this full spectrum of experience that sort of is out of our comfort zone. See, in that, in that regular hour, we can cultivate a certain state or our body settles into a certain state, and that's very good. But we get identified with the cultivation of a particular state. What can open up in Zazen after long periods, though, is this fundamental shift of perspective, which is not about the content of our experience, which is not about our feeling better for doing it. It's about our relationship to the whole of our experience and to the whole of our life. I don't know that there's any way to um, further explain that or uh, encourage people to uh, stay with the practice as opening up that kind of possibility 
I think that we all come to uh, this practice for a lot of different reasons. And probably that basic need to just settle ourselves down, to be able to be at home in our own skin, in our own mind. Uh, that's an enormous part of what practice always will be for, for most of us. And I don't mean to uh, denigrate it or minimize that. I think that's a, uh, a foundation that uh, pretty much anything else uh, we build is, is based on. But it's not all there is uh, to this practice. And other these other dimensions uh, open up uh, the longer you do it. Thought after thought, flow never stops. At some point, all that thinking shifts and thinking becomes non-thinking where we've only seen the duck all of a sudden there's a rabbit keep your eye out for it 